This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode has been carefully curated from the Top of Mind archive, and there's a lot to choose from. We've been going in-depth with guests on the air every weekday since 2015, searching for new perspectives and ideas. I hope what you hear today makes you think about your world a little differently and sparks satisfying new conversations with the people in your life. Let's dive in. One of the leading causes of chronic disease is something we are all born with. It's our immune system. That's right. The thing that's supposed to fight infection is also the culprit in type 1 diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, and many other conditions that can be debilitating. They're also very hard to treat because, again, it's the body's own immune system causing the problems. Neurosurgeon Kevin Tracy has figured out how to tap into the command center of the immune system and get it back on track using electricity instead of drugs to simply suppress the immune system. It's called bioelectronic medicine, and Dr. Tracy's on the line to explain. He's president of the Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research at Northwell Health in New York. Dr. Tracy, hi there. Thanks for your time. Hi, thank you for your time and having me on. It's great to be here. Your work focuses on the vagus nerve, as in V-A-G-U-S, not Las Vegas. (laughs) Where is the vagus nerve in the body? The vagus nerve starts in the bottom of your brain, behind your ears, basically, and runs down your neck. There's two of them, one on each side. The vagus nerves run down your neck, across your chest, and into your abdomen, the, the vagus nerve is the longest nerve in the body, and it basically touches almost every organ and, and, is, and is a key sort of superhighway that carries the information about your what's going on in your organs back and forth to your brain. So are there specific processes then that the vagus nerve is central to or just everything? There, there are certain processes. So, so the vagus nerve is not a solid copper wire. It, it's probably closer to 80,000 individual neurons that, that carry information. And so, so this information is organized by the functions of, of reflex circuits that control the functions of the organ. So, so there's many things on, on the list. Hmm. Uh, for instance, heart rate, uh, vagus nerve is very important in controlling how fast your heart beats. It, it controls insulin release. It controls how, how your kidney and, and liver works and the list goes on and on, but it's a very, um, it's, a, it's chock full of reflex circuitry that, that controls the organs you don't think about consciously minute to minute. Oh, reflex. So that's a really interesting, uh, important word then in, the, in understanding your work. It's the, it's the stuff that I can't think, okay, I'm going to beat my heart faster now, vagus nerve, send messages to my heart to beat faster. Like these are, these are reflexive happening um, without, under my conscious, uh, beneath my consciousness in my body. Correct. The, the, there are, it's possible through biofeedback and, and through training to, it, to influence your reflexes. Mm. So, so you can learn how to slowly increase or decrease your heart rate uh, with practice and, and time. But, the, but it, the, actual, the actual control of it is, is happening reflexively. Mm. So while you sleep and while you're working and while you're going for a run, your, the, the function of your organs is all being precisely controlled by reflexes that one never really thinks about. And what does the vagus nerve do with the immune system? So my colleagues and I at the Feinstein Institute um, discovered that the, the vagus nerve is a critical, 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 <laughs> the vagus nerve is a critical conduit carrying information about reflexes that control how much inflammation your immune system produces inflammation. Was, what, what do you mean inflammation? inflammation? So inflammation is, is the process of reacting to a threat. So if you are um, hit your finger with a hammer, or if you scratch your arm uh, on a, on a splinter, you see the redness and swelling and pain. That is the fundamental inflammatory response. That is inflammation. Okay. What, 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 what we've come to understand in the last 30 years really is that inflammation you can't see in your organs, as you referred to in the opening, is really important in autoimmune diseases like type 1 diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, and others. And the vagus nerve is 
the pathway that those time to get inflamed guys messages are coming through? It's the highway for those messages? The Correct. The vagus nerve is like the transatlantic cable. It's carrying information back and forth all the time that, that you're not consciously aware of. And what my colleagues and I discovered, although it was known for 100 years that the vagus nerve had this role of carrying in information about what's going on with heartbeat and, and lung function, my colleagues and I came across th through an accidental discovery in the laboratory that the vagus nerve was also monitoring inflammation. And most importantly, when inflammation begins to go out of control, the vagus nerve has an inherent capacity to reflexively turn off inflammation. And that was the, that was the real discovery, that the vagus nerve signals can switch off inflammation. Which can be good if you're somebody who has an overactive immune system in one of these diseases yeah. like rheumatoid arthritis. Exactly right. So, okay. so, so people, people say, oh, I, I want a strong immune system. And I say, well, not too strong. Um, you, you want an immune system that has an appropriately strong response. But an, but an overaggressive inflammatory response causes damage. And this is really a, a breakthrough that, that, as I said before, came just in the last 30 years. The, the fact that the immune system is the problem and that the vagus nerve can turn it off was a, was a breakthrough idea that allowed us to say, well, if we can use the signals in the vagus nerve to turn off inflammation, maybe we could build little chips or devices to activate those off switches, like turning on the brakes in a car when you're going too fast down a hill. And maybe we could use these devices to turn off inflammation in the treatment of patients with, with, with excessive Im immune responses. So you have done this miraculously. You have, with some patients, implanted an electrode, like a pacemaker type thing, on their vagus nerve <laughs> so to, to try to reduce the immune response for people who have some of these conditions. Would you tell us, walk us through um, what one of these individuals, tell us about the patient. What, what were they experiencing? What were their complaints before they came to see you? And how did you attempt to alleviate those problems for them? Right. So the U in this case, it's really important to point out as a generic U. This, the, everything we're talking about is the product of work that's done, been done literally by hundreds of people in dozens of laboratories around, around the world. My colleagues and I made some early discoveries that catapulted this idea that now allows us to be testing it in patients. Mm -hmm. so, so a company that I co-founded called Setpoint Medical launched a clinical trial several years ago. And that clinical trial enrolled patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Now, rheumatoid arthritis is a disease of excessive inflammation. And it's not, it's not the arthritis you have because, because you injured your knee playing a sport when you were younger. This is a debilitating condition that affects many joints in the body. And so some of the patients who sought to be treated in the clinical trial were um, so disabled that on, on some days they couldn't pick up a pencil and on other days needed assistance getting dressed. They, the, 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 they, the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis for this severe case is, is, are very powerful immunosuppressing drugs. And in many cases, those drugs weren't even helping these patients at all either. Mm. And so in the clinical trial that was led by my colleagues at Setpoint Medical, particularly Paul Peter Tack, who was one of the world's leading rheumatologists, uh, in Amsterdam at the time, currently in Boston, um, the patients came into the hospital to have a surgery. The surgery required implanting a small computer chip under their collarbone and an electrode, a lead up into their neck that connected to the vagus nerve. And then the, we, we could turn this device on and see what happened. And what happened in one of these patients then? Tell us about it. We were, we were thrilled to see that uh, activating the device in these patients did two things. First, as we had planned and hoped, it turned off the excessive inflammatory response, which we could measure objectively and statistically significantly in their, in their blood, in their, by drawing their blood and testing their white blood cells. So that was the goal of the, of the, of the clinical trial. In addition, Many of the patients, up to two-thirds of the patients who had failed all of the other medications available to them, showed statistically significant clinical improvement, which means they had less pain in their joints, 
they uh, had less fatigue, they had a better quality of life, and some of them were able to resume significant physical activities like riding bicycles and playing tennis that they had not been able to do for years. Just by getting some kind of electric, uh, some, uh, electric shock zapped into their vagus nerve. Yes, it's, it's a very specific type of, of electric current that's being used. The current's being delivered for just a few minutes a day. Okay. And it's being used in a very, in a very precise um, frequency and a very precise uh, amount of, of power um, or, or, or current delivery. The, nerve, the, nerve, the nerves that we're targeting, uh, we, we understand to be a few percentages of all the nerves in the vagus nerve. And these are the nerves that control the immune system in the spleen, which is the home of many of the body's white blood cells that then travel to the joints and other organs where they can cause damage. So we're using a very precise um, computer-generated um, device to control a very precise reflex, neural circuits that, that, that control the immune system in the spleen. It's, it's, very, it's very simple. Um, once you've thought of it and, hmm. and show that it works, and it's and it's very difficult to implement as a cultural change in medicine today. We'll talk about the cultural change, but you had, so you guys had to figure out which of the how many did you say like thousands of nerve fibers are inside the vagus nerve? You had to figure out which ones were because you didn't you don't want to start zapping it and find out that you're you're sending messages to the heart or to the lungs or something like you need to make sure that you're sending them specifically to the inflammation center in the body. Exactly right. So, so the work that we just summarized in the last six or seven minutes uh, represents the work of dozens of people working full time for 20 years and, and to, to pick through the, 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 the precise neurological and molecular mechanisms by which fibers traveling as as, as, as a reflex circuit out of 100,000 fibers in the human vagus nerve that we think are, are involving now about 1,000 or maybe 2,000 fibers that go to the spleen. Hmm. In, in, in the laboratory, we've mapped these fibers that start in the base of your brainstem at a place called the dorsal mortal nucleus. We know that the fibers transmit a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. When the fibers end in the abdomen, in your in your in your uh, in your abdomen, they, they they go to a like a router, which is called a ganglion, which is outside of your spleen. The signals in the ganglion switch from being acetylcholine dependent signals to norepinephrine dependent signals when they travel through a splenic nerve into your spleen. And inside the spleen, we know that these signals switch again from being norepinephrine signals to being acetylcholine signals that now control the cells that produce the inflammation. That's amazing so that, that, that you were able <laughs> you were able to trace that, the entire that, pathway then, which is, I mean, that's amazing. Um, that, it is. And what, it, it was, again, it was a huge team of people, my colleagues at the Feinstein Institute, my colleagues at Setpoint Medical in California, other colleagues in independent laboratories around the world in several countries that have replicated most, if not all of these results. Uh, really have 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 created a new field where people now call bioelectronic medicine. I'm speaking with Kevin Tracy, one of the uh, founders of bioelectronic medicine. He's a neurosurgeon, president of the Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research at Northwell Health in New York. Now, is is it possible to just um, zap these <laughs> nerve uh, nerves for, for a while, and then at some point the system kind of resets, or will someone with rheumatoid arthritis need to always, every day for a couple of minutes for the rest of their life probably, be doing this electrical stimulation in order to keep their symptoms at bay and keep their inflammation in check? That is a billion-dollar question, and we don't know the answer yet. Okay. It seems uh, possible that uh, with time, the nervous system of a patient may reset or learn a, a, a new set point in, in which it seems possible based on what we've learned in the laboratory that there may be adjustments, either decreasing or increasing adjustments to the settings over time. But these are early days. In the, in the whole world, there have probably been 100 or less patients studied so far. And in order to answer a question like you just framed, this will require the work of many more clinical trials 
and perhaps hundreds, if not thousands of patients. Mm. If you ask me, what is my working model and my working hypothesis? I think some patients will find that they, their disease goes into remission and that, that someday they'll be able to turn the device off and not need it anymore. But, but that's, a, that's a hypothesis. It's not a proven, statistically proven theory yet. What is the cultural change that will have to take place, though? It seems to me like any patient who's been on the drugs that suppress their immune system in order to kind of, but not in a great way, treat their disease, and plus they have all the side effects that come with those drugs, like patients, it seems like, would jump at the chance to have this treatment. What, what is the cultural shift that would have to happen? We are living through now the adoption barrier of any new therapy in medicine. I mean, uh, we could talk, we can start with the story of, of Ignat Semmelweis, who discovered that hand washing saved lives hmm. when medical students doing autopsies in the 19th century in Austria, in Vienna, when they washed their hands after doing autopsies and before they delivered a baby in the next room. Um, the death rate of the babies and the mothers went down because they washed their hands. Ignac Semmelweis proved this statistically and began to teach his colleagues the importance of hand washing. His, co his colleagues accused him of being insane and eventually had him admitted, admitted to a con uh, consigned to a prison where, where he was beaten to death by, by the guards. Hmm. And a and hundred years later, there's still, there were still studies in, in our modern era of physician resistance to washing hands. So are physicians so, the ones that think you're nuts to, to propose electricity <laughs> instead of drugs? Or is it the drug companies who would, you know, prefer to keep selling the drugs that make them money? It's 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 no one it's no one group that thinks anyone's nuts, really. And what, what I'm seeing now is that patients hear the story and they know that many patients are being failed by their drugs and, and want to try this. Um, we speak to scientists around the world. Um, before, before, before we, when we used to have live meetings, there would be hundreds or more people in the room of scientists who, who essentially by and large agree with the basic principles I'm explaining to you because we understand the mechanisms. There is an industry growing up around this, which is a multi-billion dollar industry now focusing on the development of bioelectronic devices. Um, the, in addition to Setpoint Medical, which is leading the way in this space, there are a dozen other companies at least, some with valuations in the hundreds of millions of dollars looking at developing bioelectronic therapies. So what's missing really, what's missing is time to prove the uh, regulatory uh, requirements have been fulfilled, time to prove in replicated clinical trials with large randomized cohorts that we understand the, the statistical significance of the response, the durability of the response, and we understand how to pick the correct patients. And time, frankly, for physicians who are very used to prescribing medicines to learn how to incorporate this idea into their practice. And so we have, we have time is needed. And you know, for all, all that you read and all that you hear about the pace of scientific and medical breakthroughs, when it comes down to adopting a new idea, a truly new idea into clinical practice, it takes a lot longer than anybody really wants. Neurosurgeon Kevin Tracy is one of the founders of Bioelectronic Medicine, an emerging field, and he's president of the Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research at Northwell Health in New York. Good luck with your time. I hope time, uh, your, your work, I hope time speeds up a bit for the sake of a lot of patients out there. I appreciate you taking time with us today, Dr. Tracy. Thank you. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. We've collected some of our favorite interviews from past years. Thanks for listening. This is Top of Mind. Today, we've collected some of our favorite interviews from past years. Thanks for listening. The one thing Washington Post columnist Michelle Singletary says she has learned in decades of counseling people about money is that a crisis is never far away, which means, and this may be hard to hear, if you're planning to splurge on a vacation to reward yourself for surviving the last year, you better have your credit card debt paid off and enough savings to keep your household afloat for three months before you make that splurge. 
Harsh, I know. But it's one of many things Singletary stands firmly by in her latest book, What to Do with Your Money When Crisis Hits. And Michelle Singletary is on the line. Hi, thanks for your time. Oh, thank you for having me. Tell me more about this the, the appropriate balance between doing something nice for yourself to boost your morale and getting on top of your debt and your savings. Are there no exceptions there? Yeah, so I'm pretty hardcore. <laughs> you know, lots of experts say, oh, you know, if you're saving, you should take a little pause and treat yourself. And I say, no, suffer. Because it's in that suffering that you learn to be without, and you don't want to go back there. So, yeah, if you uh, are in deep in debt or have credit card debt that you're not paying off every month, then I need you to just save. Uh, and it doesn't mean that you can't have fun. I just don't need you to spend that money that is going to be needed for other things. And you can walk in the park and walk through your neighborhood um, and do all kinds of other things that doesn't cost you any money. But if you're making the choice to um, skip a few payments, skip a few of the pay off my credit card debt payments that I've been making so that I can go on a vacation, that's that's the choice that you'd, you'd like to see me not make. Oh, most definitely don't do that. That is just reckless. And people will say to me, well, I've got, I've got these other debts, but I've saved up for this vacation. That's how they try to get me to co-sign this bad decision. <laughs> and they said, but it's some money. But that's money that should be put to pay down that debt or to save. And I don't want people to operate out of fear. But the fact of the matter is we will get through this pandemic. But guess what? There is going to be another crisis after that. And I want you to be better prepared for it than perhaps you were this time around. What were some of the things you heard from people at the start of the pandemic? Some of the, oh, man, what do I do now, Michelle, (laughs) kinds of comments. Yeah, there, there were different categories of people, those who are living paycheck to paycheck, that they they just didn't have it to save. And now think, you know, things got really bad for them. But there are a lot of people who was like, man, I wish I had listened to your advice. I wish I had that emergency fund. You know, I wish I didn't have all this debt. I could have weathered this storm a lot better. So I heard a lot of regret. But I also heard from quite a few people who didn't lose their job. Things didn't change. But because things were shut down, their spending was essentially shut down, they were able to aggressively pay off debt and save. I run this financial ministry program at my church. It's fairly large. Every month, about two of us get together and I do a workshop. And I would say about half of them have been giving testimonies of saving thousands of dollars and getting out of debt worth thousands of dollars because they shut things down. Oh, because they couldn't travel and they couldn't shop and they couldn't. And apparently they didn't shift all of their consuming online. Because Well, that's exactly right. (laughs) I mean, if they are part of this program that I run, they knew better than that. Mm. And so they'd always complain, oh, I don't have the money to pay it off. They always did. But Mm. I didn't have the money. And now when things couldn't happen, they go, oh, you know what? I actually did have the money. Mm. And they put it to good use by getting out of debt and or saving or both. What what debt are you talking about people actually need to get out of? All debt, even like home loans or car oh, loans? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, you've probably heard that that expression is good debt and bad debt. Mm. Um, and I always ask people, okay, so what's good debt? And they'll say things like, oh, well, you know, the mortgage and student loan. And I said, okay, I get you. But let's talk about what the word, you know, some, some synonyms for good, pleasurable, desirable. So I said, is it are you pleasant when you have to write that mortgage check? Are you cheering when you have to make that student loan payment? No, you just see it as debt at that point. So all debt is just debt. And so all of it, you need to get off of your shoulder as quickly as possible. And so I try not to attach those adjectives to the debt because I want you to hate that. I joke that if debt was a person, I'd slap it. That's how much I hate that. How realistic is that, though? Do you actually know that many people who are completely out of debt, even their homes, which is, I mean, that's a huge amount of money for most people. It is a huge amount of money, and I do know people who who have done that. Um, Now, you know, the home loan is a big carry, right? So I get that. That may not happen until the time you're about to retire, but I definitely know a lot of retired people who are pre-retirement or in retirement who got rid of the home loan. Mm -hmm. But it's very doable, and I think it's so interesting that your question, because that's how a lot of people feel. And, and for example, I deal with a lot of people who have, you know, a a large amount of student loan debt, and they come to me, and one wife in particular said, 
I will never pay this debt off. I'm going to die with debt. So I the might student as well. loan, the student loan debt. And she just, she and her husband had just thrown up their hands. They had about $200,000 in student loan debt. And she said, you know what? I'm just going to die with this. So I'm going to go ahead and put my kids in private school. I'm going to take vacations. I'm going to upgrade my house because this debt is going to be around like it's a pet. And I challenged them on that. And and I put them on, you know, a, a tough debt diet and cut their spending. And do you know, in five, less than five years, without any extra income, they were able to get out of all of that debt by doing some things that I asked them to do. And Ugh. it's possible. How miserable were their lives, though, in the five years? I mean, you what know, did they have to go without? It. Yeah, you know, they had to go without. But once they started knocking off debt, it became, it, you know, their hearts were lifted mm. because they saw, you know, uh, the they they saw into this this debt that they were carrying, and once they got out of that, you know what the next thing that their husband said, who was kind of you know he's sort of reluctant at first, he said, you know what, they're in their forties by the way, he said, you know what, we can get if we paid off that much in our student loan debt, we can get rid of our home loan um, by the time we're in our fifties. And I said, ding ding ding, imagine that it's a game changer for them. I'm speaking with Michelle Singletary, who's a personal finance columnist for The Washington Post. Why is it so difficult then, do you think, for people to to make the changes that will help them to weather a crisis more effectively? Yeah. Yeah. And again, we're talking about people who have the wherewithal. So let's just stick with that group of people, which is quite a many millions of Americans, because you want it all right? Mm. You make these decisions, some of them bad, some of them you just didn't know were bad. But you want to say, well, you know, I still want to take that vacation. I still want that bigger house. I still want to upgrade my car every six, five or six years. You know, I want all this stuff for my kids. I want to take that vacation. Um, And so we want it all. We are living the American dream on borrowed money. And what I'm saying is your dreams will be much better if you're not dragging at debt. Because, which is the thesis of the book, is that we're going to have another recession. We're going to have another economic downturn. And I want you to position yourself so that you can weather that storm and build a financial legacy for your children, right? That's really what it's about, having a financial legacy so that you don't leave, um, so that you leave some resources for them, make it a little bit better for them. You have three young adult children now, is that right? That's right. Mm -hmm. Has has being the parent of young adults, seeing them, you know, trying to establish themselves, having, you know, doing a lot of the things that cost money, obviously, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, has that changed your perspective on, on, on what's good enough in terms of how much savings and, and how financially secure you need to be before you can do some of the things you want to do in your life? Well, you know, I think it'd be interesting to do a show talking to my children because, <laughs> you know, they were, the, they were the grunts in this army of mine, you know. <laughs> but I will say this. I was talking to my oldest daughter, who's 26, and we, you know, we do well for ourselves now. Nice house and all that. And, but we always lived as if we were, you know not as well off as we were. And so we, you know, we didn't buy them a bunch of video games and clothes and, you know, none of the stuff that their friends had um, because we wanted to save for them to go to college debt-free, which we did. Mm. And so she said her friends, when they came over and had been talking to her, they were like, we didn't know you had, like, money. And so she said, first of all, my parents had money. But because we taught them that, that, that they had to work for things and, and delayed gratification, all three, are brilliant money managers because we taught them about delayed gratification. We taught them the importance of savings. We taught them to hate debt. And so now they handle their money so well. It doesn't mean that they don't do some things, but they do it in moderation. They do it based on their income that they're making. Two of them are in college, so they have part-time jobs, but they live within those. And when they work for the summer, rather than going to the mall and all kinds of things like that, they had, because we were paying everything, we said, well, you didn't need to take care of your personal expenses. So they would save their entire summer uh, salaries and live off of that during the school year. And just as it was about to run out, they were, you know, time for them to get another summer job. But they were able to work and live on that money because we taught them. And and you know what? If you if you 
if you showcase a certain lifestyle, then your young adult children won't be out there trying to keep up with the Joneses. Now, you know, lots of people are thinking, well, your kid's probably going to need therapy because, you know, (laughs) they didn't do anything. But that's not true either. So we took two-week vacations every year. We took them. They've been to Hawaii. They've been to Aruba, you know, but they knew that we saved for that. And And we wouldn't have saved if we couldn't have saved for them to go to college. They knew that we were saving for our own retirement. They know that we're saving to pay our house off before we retire. And so while and if we couldn't do all of those, then we would not have taken any of those vacations, right? Mm. We wouldn't have done. And they know that. They know that we made a decision to do certain things and sacrifice early in our um, young adult lives, my husband and I, I mean, um, to make sure to make a life for them so that all three, when I say all three have gone to college with no debt, I mean no debt. Now for them, not for us. And because we started when they were little people, we saved enough to also pay for them to get a graduate degree if that's necessary. So my oldest went, she's got her master's degree debt-free. My my son, who will be uh, graduating as a senior and wants to now go to graduate school, he'll be able to go to graduate school with no debt. And my youngest, thankfully, she wants some scholarship money, so she definitely <laughs> can not have any money. But you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That we taught them about better decision-making as it relates to their finances, and they don't feel deprived at all now. Now, they did when they were little, right? You know? And as a result, my husband and I invested in a really good padlock for our be- for our bedroom door, so they wouldn't smother us in our sleep. And so, <laughs> I mean, that's pretty remarkable. It took a lot of work, I, I know, on your part. But um, you, for, for for families who haven't maybe um, been able to do all that you've described, so that their kids can go debt free to school, for example, you. Um, have another probably unpopular opinion in the book, which is that you're a fan of adult kids moving back in with their parents. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. If, you know, in, in in order for them to be able to save, to get themselves out of debt, or especially in moments of crisis. Why? Yes. I am a big believer in shared housing and multi-generational housing because my 26-year-old, she lives with us. We fixed up the little area in our basement. It looks like a little apartment. She has her own entryway. She doesn't have to see us. We don't have to see her. Does she pay rent? She does not because um, she is uh, studying to get her next license, and so we didn't want to put that pressure on her, and she's got to, you know, um, take courses and things like that. Um, so, And we don't need the money, and she wants to save to buy her own home, and she wants to say we, we got her a car, used beat-up car when she was in high school. She still drives that car, which is now 10 years old, and she wants to buy a new one when she turns 30, and so she's saving for that now. So she has decided that she will never have a car payment in her adult life, and it's very possible. Hmm. So if and, your kid, if you're a parent who, whose kid is maybe not as um, thrifty and <laughs> focused on saving, do you still let them move in with you so that they you can do. get into debt and buy the stuff that they want to do? That's, so, so in the book, I talk about situations and when you let a young adult. So if, they, if, a young, if it's possible, now it's not possible for everyone, but I encourage people to go back home if they have student loan debt. So if they're coming back with student loan debt, you don't charge them rent, not even food. You let them use almost all of their paycheck to get out of that debt. And imagine that's going to be just a couple of years if they don't have any rent and utilities and all of that. So, and, and if they're trying to come back to save for a home, you don't charge them rent. If they've got other debt and they may some mistakes, you do that now. You watch its situation very carefully so that if they are become reckless while they're living with you, they're out partying and spending money like and treating your house like a hotel, then you charge them rent because you want to put some economic pressure on them. Um, my nephew came to live with me because we believe in shared housing. So we've had my sister live with me for three years, a relative live with me for almost two years so that she could get out of debt. So when my nephew came to live with me, we, we charged him about 30% of his paycheck for rent and then we started to you know inch it up because we felt like he needed a little bit of that pressure <laughs> by the time we were charging him market rent he was like well if i'm paying you all this money i should be out on my own and i was like ding 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so and but along the way we just gradually grew him into what it's like to fully pay for yourself um and one month i have to tell you this quick story so one month he came he was a dollar short in my rent it was only like three hundred dollars and i don't even know why he was a dollar short but and and I said hold up I just counted it you're a dollar short 
Where's my dollar? And he's like, oh, I'm Michelle. Yeah, you're going to give. Yeah, because you know. Well, he didn't know. But you know that you can't pay your mortgage a dollar short. You can't pay your rent. They will send them payment back and charge you a late fee. So I wanted him to learn that lesson. So I said, you need to go find me my dollar. <laughs> he looked in his car. And he got his little coins, and he paid it to me. But, you know, when it was time for him to move out, he came to me with his little budget. And I never forget it. On his budget, he had rent and food and gas, and he had cable, and he had crossed it out because mm. he said, I can't afford cable right now. You taught him how to be an adult. Michelle That's Singletary, right. thank you so much for your time. You're so welcome. Michelle Singletary is a personal finance columnist for The Washington Post, and our new book is What to Do With Your Money When Crisis Hits. I'm Julie Rose. The conversations in today's episode come from the Top of Mind archive. You're listening to Top of Mind. I'm Ciara Hewlett. Plants give us food, clean our air, and make our world a more beautiful place. But on top of that, what if they could also provide us with electricity? A Dutch startup company called Nova Nova is harnessing the electric abilities of plants through what they call living light. And it's already powering a park in the Netherlands. Carline Arts is co-founder of Nova Nova and joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, absolutely. You're more than welcome. Happy to be here. What future do you imagine with this technology? So the future, what we imagine with this technology is thanks to the collaboration with nature. So generating energy through plants and trees is that we can, for example, have a future where the forest becomes a power plant to, to charge the nearby villages with all the power they, they need. Or, for example, that you have your lamps, which are actually charged by the, the trees or the plants next to it. So that we want to create a future where we can collaborate with nature and start off burning it or hurting it in that sense. Can you describe what the lamp looks like that, that you've created to harness the, the light capabilities of plants? Yeah, absolutely. So what it is, is actually, um, if you can imagine a, a glass lamp bulb. So it's about uh, a half meter long. And what it does is actually, you see this uh, glass bulb and inside there's a, a plant living. And that plant is actually indirectly your energy source. So what happens is that um, the, the plants in the end provides the LED lights in the lamp. And those are actually hidden in a bamboo ring. And the bamboo LED, LED lights? LED. Yeah, yeah, LED lights. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Those are um, halfway uh, the, the glass bulb in a bamboo ring. And underneath there, you see this black magical box. And in that box is actually where the magic really happens because that's where then the electrons are being uh, harvested. Okay. And the beautiful thing about this lamp is as well when you touch it, that's your light switch. So we don't have a classical light switch because it's a special energy source. We actually have a light switch. So the moment you give the plant some love, you get some love back in terms of light. Wait, when you touch the plant, like I touch a leaf and that's when the light will turn on? Yes. So what? it's uh, definitely a special way of, uh, of uh, generating your energy. So we wanted to create a special story. You have to take care of your plants. And also the plants will tell you when the plant is doing not that well. So for example, when the plant is slowly dying, you will get less energy, but also it will not react on your touch that much anymore. So you're in constant interaction, giving your plant love, receiving love uh, all the time. Okay, this just sounds like like fiction. <laughs> this doesn't sound real. This is so crazy. So so you said that the, the bo black box underneath is where the, the magic happens. Um, how does this work? How I had no idea that plants could generate electricity. So how does it work? Yeah, so definitely a good question. And I will try to run it uh, through. Um, so what happens, of course, the plants um, uh, have the process of photosynthesis, where they create sugars for their own growth. But often they generate too much sugars. So what they will do is push those sugars into the soil. And in the soil, there are bacteria eating these sugars. And then the special thing happens because some of those bacteria 
will actually push away electrons and protons from their body. So as the ultimate end product of nature itself. And then in the black box, the magical black box, we have a cell which can actually capture those electrons and protons. So in that sense, indirectly from the photosynthesis process of the plants, but then with the collaboration of the microbes, the bacteria in the soil, we generate the energy. Okay, so there's sugar, there's too much of it that the plant makes just through photosynthesis. The bacteria eat the sugar, then comes electrons and protons, and then through this technological process, you're able to capture those electrons and protons and turn them into light, electricity. Yeah, absolutely. That's okay. correct. Yeah. And then um, how how do you make it so that the on switch is touching the plant? Yeah, so there's two technologies. So one is indeed in the black box, that's the cell. And it's a really powerful technology, it's called a microbial fuel cell. So that's the cell which captures the electrons and the protons with an anode and a cathode site. And that's a promising technology because it can turn all sorts of organic waste into an energy source. So that's the one side, the microbial fuel cell technology. And then on the other side, we, work, we collaborate with the plant itself because plants can see and they can feel. They can see because they grow towards the sun and they can also feel. They have a nerve system, they have the roots, they communicate with each other with molds and we make uh, use of the nerve system. So the moment you touch the plant, the plant actually gives a signal to us that we can release the energy which we uh, created and stored with the microbial fuel cell technology. So you've tapped into that nerve system with like wires or something like that. And, and so that's how it knows that it, somehow you with technology, you've been able to, it, it, you can you can see what the plant is feeling and then it'll say, okay, the plant is feeling a touch, turn on the LED lights now. Yeah, so it's a step-faced approach. So this part of the technology, so the sensoring part, what we did, for example, with the living light lamp is the first phase is because of the shakiness. So you touch the plants and it shakes. Oh. And then we use that sensoring to trigger it. Okay. And the next phase is in the roots. So there are already sensors which can see a differentiation in the roots because you touch it and then you tap into the nerve system. So in the second phase of sensoring, we hope to reach that the plant can tell us literally that it's being touched because we see this differentiation um, uh, through the nerve system in the roots themselves. Okay. Huh. That's so fascinating. So um, does it have to be plugged in? No. Yeah, that's the magic, right? So the plant which lives inside the lamp itself is your energy source. So the beauty of this is that um, this technology provides you with an off-grid energy solution, which works 24-7. So that's something different from the solar panels or the wind turbines we know right now, uh, because they only, of course, produce electricity energy when the wind is blowing or when the sun is shining. But these bacteria, as long as your plants are still living, they're still producing sugars, and where there are sugars, these bacteria are. So in that sense, this is a process which happens 24-7. So it's completely independent. It doesn't need any source of power. It just just the plant is the, the entirely the power here. Um, yeah. How long can it can it work? How how much how much light can it give off? Could could you have it on indefinitely then? That you know, or does it eventually it would run out of sugars to to turn into electricity? Yeah. So what we do is, of course, we try to uh, what we do is work in a balance with nature. So you don't want to capture all the electrons and protons from the soil. So we know the perfect balance. Yet we also know we're far from it, from the perfect balance. In other words, we don't we're currently not capable of uh, capturing all the potential. So there's still a lot more potential than where we're at right now. Uh, but what we do is we capture 24 seven, then we push it to a storage. So there's this beautiful artificial uh, leaf in between the, the leaves of the plant itself. And that's our storage. So we constantly tap in to a bit of the potential in the soil. Then we send it to the storage. 
And the moment you touch it, you then say to the storage, release your energy. So um, to, to get back to your question right now, the potential is one plant can provide with enough energy during one day for 15 minutes of light to light up three LEDs. This is the, the lowest potential. So you can imagine the solar panels of 30 years ago. This is a new concept. It's highly innovative. So that's the reason why we're still developing this concept further. And one plant is 15 minutes for this moment in time. But we, of course, want to increase it. And you can imagine for the park we installed, you already touched upon that in the beginning, that the potential is way bigger because then we have way more plants. So at the park, the light can um, uh, turn off and go out the whole evening because you have all the plants to your, to your, um, to your availability. Okay, so right now it's only 15 minutes, but could that store up if you didn't use it one day? Could it store up in that that artificial leaf you're talking about? So that, you know, if you don't use it for a few days, then you could get 45 minutes of light? Yeah, so definitely we can store it up. It just depends on your storage capacity, uh, capacity what you use. And the 15 minutes is only for one plant. And I think that's already really promising from one little plant uh, um, for this light. Uh, that it can already produce this. And um, you can imagine still the solar panel 30 years ago uh, definitely was uh, facing maybe more challenges than we do uh, than we do right now. So the 15 minutes, how big of a plant are we talking? So the plant is, uh, let's say it's around 20 centimeters high. Um, it's a kind of your average, average plant which stands on your table right now. Okay. So if you had a tree that could potentially create a lot more light for much much longer time span absolutely so it's all about also uh, generating the sugars from the plants from the photosynthesis process so in theory a tree of course would be really interesting because the the sugars it of course will uh, put into the soil is way bigger um, and another thing in theory what is really interesting is actually with farmers so when a crop is growing um, it actually of course because it's growing it's, it takes a lot of sunlight uh, photosynthesis is going on a lot of energy but it also puts more sugar into the uh, soil while it's growing so potentially trees are really interesting but also uh, uh, crops crops which are growing I'm speaking with Carline Arts. She's co-founder of Nova Innova, this company creating living light, uh, electricity from plants. You've already installed these in a park in the Netherlands. Could you describe what that looks like? Absolutely. So what we did in the park is uh, it's a park in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. And once you walk on the pot of the park, Lights will follow you like little fireflies that you have the feeling that something special is going on. But something special is going on because the plants in the park generate energy for the lights. So those ones, instead of by touch, it's by they're they're activated by motion by someone walking by. Yeah. So what we did over there is actually uh, wait. So what we wanted to regulate is when you walk on it, that humans can trigger it, that even dogs can trigger it, but not, for example, a little bird, which can be disturbed by, for example, the light uh, uh, coming up. Oh, okay. So you just have like uh, pressure sensors on, on the ground. And so if you walk by, then it'll turn on. Um, yeah. So So then with those ones, because they only like you said, take, get about 15 minutes of light every day. If if it's only turning on for a second as people walk by, then it would probably last and you have a whole bunch of these, I'm imagining? Yeah, that's true. So what we work in the park is whereas uh, with the living light, you only have one plant. What we have with the park are actually square meter uh, models. So then a lot of plants are on those square meters and they collaborate to generate energy so it's bundles so in that sense you have on the one hand more energy and also because of the breadth of light instead of just turning off and going on it's actually positive side benefits like uh, light pollution we don't speak about it that much but light pollution is actually really confusing for a lot of animals so also having the park light up only when you walk by 
is also positively contributing to the, the challenge of light pollution in cities. Do you think that someday this could power an entire building or an entire city if you got, you know, you developed the technology more and then also had a whole collaboration of, you know, maybe a forest or something like that. So you had a lot more mm -hmm. light. Yeah, so it's always interesting um, uh, to, of course, have this um, question, but also to think about this in the future. And what we always try to tell is our future energy system should not consist of only one major energy source or three, like we know it right uh, at this moment. So right now we have coal, we have oil, and we have gas. But the future system should be a combination of 20 to 30 different energy sources. So it should be your body heat, your body movement, the plants, your urine, compost, energy, wind, all combined to create a CO2 neutral society. I think when we're, we're getting kind of stuck in trying to have this mass production, so often when you try to scale things as a really large quantity, it automatically becomes unsustainable. So Living Light is for us a solution to provide the energy system of tomorrow where it will be a part of the, of the mix. So yes, your light will be charged by the plants. And yes, you can charge your phone with the plants, but your movement will help you and uh, the, the wind will help you to maybe then charge your washing machine, et cetera, et cetera. So we're hope, hopefully promoting this system where all these different sources can be combined in, um, in providing you with this uh, CO2 uh, neutral future. I want my own yeah. plant now. I'm like, I'd love oh, to have yeah. one of these in oh. my room that I can just touch it and know that, like, you know, it's generating a light. I think that'd be so fun. Yeah. Hopefully, Hopefully someday. <laughs> yeah. But you go to IKEA, you buy your plants and the cells included and you can just touch it and but also charge your phone and everything. But you have your portable energy source. You actually have right. <laughs> so that would be uh, that would be great. Yeah. Well, I'll yeah. be on the lookout for when this comes to the, when I can actually buy one of these. Carline Arts is co-founder of Nova Innova, the company developing Living Light. I'm Ciara Hewlett. This is Top of Mind. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. It's been great having you with us. Today's show was a selection of conversations from the Top of Mind archives, which go all the way back to the start of our program in 2015. You can find all of it on the free BYU Radio app, by the way. And connect with us on social media to let us know what you think. We are at BYU Top of Mind on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll talk soon.